they will deny that they are far-right people, but when you read their stuff, you know, a good two-thirds of it sounds like it could be on Alex Jones. Hey everyone, this is Jason Kebler with Radio Motherboard, and we've got a brand new episode from, who are you? I'm Louise Matsakis. I'm Motherboard's new assistant editor. What's this week's episode about? So I talked to two researchers about Bitcoin, everyone's favorite topic, and I kind of tried to get to the bottom of the ideology behind Bitcoin rather than the technology of how it works. So it's kind of an episode about politics and about cryptocurrencies and what this tech is really going to be for. Okay, let's listen to it. Yeah, so Bitcoin. It was one of the first cryptocurrencies to be created and one of the most popular in the world. If you're not super familiar, cryptocurrencies are digital forms of payment that aren't tied to any particular government or ruling body. Since the early 2010s or so, they've grown seriously popular online. A single Bitcoin is now worth close to $2,400. In this episode, though, we're not talking about making money. I spoke to two researchers about why cryptocurrencies were created in the first place. My goal was to get to the bottom of what Bitcoin enthusiasts believe and what their ideological goals really are. Here's David Columbia, an associate professor in the English department at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's also the author of a short book published last year that I highly recommend. It's called The Politics of Bitcoin, Software as Right-Wing Extremism. How did you first become interested in Bitcoin and how does it fit into your larger research interests? I worked on Wall Street for about a decade in a software company in the in the financial industry and um, we weren't directly involved in investing but in order to do that work you kind of had to teach yourself how finance worked and digital finance is something I've always paid a lot of attention to you know when Bitcoin had its first major run-up to about a thousand dollars or something I think in 2013 or 14 I was really struck by the ubiquity of what I think of as conspiracy theories that one sees floating around all over Wall Street all the time about how the Federal Reserve operates and the gold standard and how inflation works even. And the more I started to dig into it, the more I just found it to be nearly omnipresent, even as we'll probably talk about in people who don't necessarily think they subscribe to this sort of far-right worldview. I'm very interested in general in what I see as far-right politics that underpin a lot of parts of the digital utopianism, advocacy for digital media and digitization of things, where, you know, when you really dig into the history and you think carefully about the kind of philosophical underpinnings of a lot of these ideas, they really do not come out of as what I see as you know, I am sort of favored, biased toward the left, but left or even centrist political views, they come out of some pretty far right political thought. And I guess one more thing to say is that Bitcoin is just one in a long series of digital currencies. It happens to be the most famous one. But there's these two sort of overlapping groups, the crypto anarchists and the cypherpunks, which have been around since the mid to late 1980s. And people like Julian Assange are members of these groups. Sure, yeah. You know, they will deny that they are far-right people. But when you read their stuff, you know, a good two-thirds of it sounds like it could be on Alex Jones, right? (laughs) So where were you kind of seeing this? Like, were you reading about it online? Were you, like, hearing it among your colleagues? Can you tell me about, like, kind of some of your first experiences of learning about Bitcoin? Like, was it on forums? Was it in books? No, no, online, you know, on Reddit, on dedicated Bitcoin sites of various sorts that have had various 
forums. For sure. What year did you kind of like start seeing this stuff start to bubble up? Oh, I, it was 2013-14. Right. Kind of like when Bitcoin first came onto the scene. Well, it was on the scene for a year or two before that, but it was really when it had that run-up when it started to go up near $1,000 that really people started to pay attention to it. And some of the pirate party people in Europe started to think it was this transformative thing. And there became people who sort of devoted their whole careers to this identification with Bitcoin. On Twitter, of course, there is a huge amount of Bitcoin advocacy. Honestly, one thing that really drew my attention was a Twitter account called Shit Our Bitcoin Says. (laughs) Tell me, what was the goal of the Twitter account? That's really funny. It it would just clip out quotes that were very congenial to my way of thinking that were just like these absurdities about Bitcoin as the transformation of the nation state and the end of fiat currency and all these like things which sound good if you haven't really thought about it, but they're really just full of contradictions. Right. That's a good segue. What do you think the original intent was or what a lot of the original people who became involved in Bitcoin wanted. The crypto anarchists and the cypherpunks have been advocating for cryptocurrencies for a long time, right? I mean, they are the stew out of which stuff boils, right? I mean, they are explicit. They want it to tear apart the nation state because they hate states. They hate democracy. They are completely clear about that. And sort of fortunately, to my way of thinking, a lot of them believe in this inaccurate conspiratorial view of how the Federal Reserve works and how money works. So, you know, one of the saving graces is that I think they're wrong in their diagnosis. (laughs) So it's not actually going to work the way they want it to work. Give me an example, because I think the idea kind of with Bitcoin is that it could replace a monetary system that's run by nation states and run by elites. And if we replaced it, the idea is that, you know, these people would come out of power and we'd live in this utopia where everyone has personal freedom. But like, what's wrong with that argument? Like, what's a good example of like one line of thinking that's incorrect? In your view, first of all, it's a it's a bizarre thing to claim that there are you know elites, which I think is a code word always you know that really troubles me, especially in current politics. But th- that they have this kind of ironclad control over money in the world, and that if you removed them somehow from the nation state generation of money, that they would no longer be able to do their kind of evil machinations on whatever it is you replaced it with. Right, right. They're like this boogeyman. And that's exactly what we see happening, right? I mean, it, it part of what concerns me so much about Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrency markets is that I think they are being unbelievably manipulated by people who have the money to go in and either mine the coins by buying huge amounts of machinery that no individual can afford, or cornering the investment market by just buying up all the coins of one sort Monday and dumping them on the market Tuesday. and Right. Or the people who have the technical expertise to steal from these exchanges. So it's kind of like this whole system was supposed to be against the hypothetical elites. But in reality, there's the elite structure within Bitcoin itself, which is something you mentioned in your book. You talk about how they are so against governance and they're so against regulation. But within the Bitcoin community, there is acts of what could be considered governing the exchanges and governing the community, and they have to make the same kinds of decisions that lawmakers have to make. So it's supposed to be this you know, place for absolute personal freedom, but in reality, it works in the same way that a lot of traditional communities work. There's a hierarchy. Right. I mean, part of the sort of fictional aspect of what they're saying is that you could have some kind of human society that didn't have governance or didn't have even informal, temporary hierarchies. We know that's untrue. So what happens is you get new ones, you know, that function very similarly to the old ones, but you can't like mystically dissolve them just by willing it to be so, you know, and there's that weird misidentification of 
the, the technology, the fact that the technology runs on all these servers with sort of a political democratization as if the power is spread out among all the people in the same way that it's spread out among all the servers. But those two things are not at all the same as we see, right? Uh, you know, in the way that China is probably doing close to 50% of all the Bitcoin mining at this point in a few isolated locations where electricity is cheap in rural China. And people will still sell that as some kind of democratized technology. And I'm like, it's more concentrated than what we ordinarily call money. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I kind of want to address two different groups and kind of ask what you would say to them. The first is, what do you answer to the casual cryptocurrency enthusiast that is just like, oh, I can make a lot of money off this. This is really interesting. I'm just going to get in on it. Like, who cares what the ideology behind it is? Does it matter? Like, let's say I'm a leftist and I'm like, oh, but I can make a bunch of money off Bitcoin and I'm going to invest in it. Like, is that an incoherent thought to have? Or like, what do you say to those people who are there being like, oh, this is an exciting investment vehicle that feels more rebellious than, say, buying stocks? So look, on the one hand, cryptocurrencies are not supposed to be investment vehicles, right? And this is part of the interesting kind of incoherent ideology underneath it all, which, you know, as we were just talking about earlier, Bitcoin became kind of famous when it rose in value. And the thing that is supposed to be important about a currency, in fact, what is at the bottom of all the Bitcoin stuff about the gold standard and inflation and everything is the fact that currencies fluctuate in value. So one would imagine that if they were offering a tremendous new currency to replace the badly functioning old ones, like its primary feature would be that it never changed in value. And some people are working on versions of cryptocurrency that might do that, and they might be interesting. But the fact is, most people pay attention to these things because they are wildly fluctuating in value, and you can get rich off them. And that has very little to do with the currency function, right? They are really much more like stocks that don't necessarily represent anything, not a company underneath them necessarily, although sometimes they do. And you don't have to have a brokerage account. You you don't have to have income requirements. Uh, you don't have to pay transaction fees necessarily, although in reality you do. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You can get rich like crazy off some of these things. It's just that who am I to tell people not to do that? I think that it is an incredibly risky world to become part of. And Henry Blodgett recently had a good piece on Business Insider, right, where he, he talked about how people see that there's like this limited downside, which is you could lose all the money you put in. And there's an unlimited upside. You know, you could make 10,000, 20,000% return, which is absolutely true. But he's actually wrong about the first part, right? Because a lot of the cryptocurrency exchanges are starting to offer things like margin and leverage and borrowing, very similar to what you can do on Wall Street, and shorting the cryptocurrencies. And so, in fact, your loss potential is greater than the amount you invest if you choose to do that kind of stuff. I thought it was funny the other day, I think it was a Coindesk article or another site similar that had a listing. There, It was for Visa, and Visa was hiring you know, a blockchain researcher. And everyone was like, oh, God, like, what is this? And I was like, this is entirely unsurprising to me. But it's interesting to like see the pushback when the organizations that this technology is supposed to be working against are like, no, we're actually going to participate. Hard to imagine what they thought was going to happen, right? Like, did they think that like there was only going to be this Bitcoin version of Visa somehow that was going to tear apart the like, that's where their thinking becomes very, very fuzzy and non-detailed. <laughs> right. 
another good group that I kind of want to address. So, like, there's a casual Bitcoin enthusiast who kind of goes into it being like, can I make money? Like, what's going on here? This is exciting. And then I think that there's another group, which I think is really important that these people kind of confront your argument, are people who have overtly leftist politics, but believe in Bitcoin and believe that like this is something that's useful for their ideology. You know, what what's kind of like your response to them? I feel like your response is that their argument is incoherent, but I wonder in what way? Like where's like kind of the the bedrock of what's wrong with that idea? These are some of the more frustrating conversations I have and at some level this is a big part of what my work is oriented toward because at a very gross level what I keep seeing is like people very associated with the right build these technologies and unleash them on the world. And then like some of my pals on the left, you know, years after the technology is launched, notice that there's a craze about it and start going, oh, this is for us. This is going to solve our problems. And I and the group of people I agree with will often step, you know, say to them immediately, well, you know, wait, this was birthed by all these other people who think it's fulfilling their political ideology. How do you confront that fact? And right then there is often a real, you know, it produces a certain kind of anger and a reluctance to engage in the arguments. And unfortunately to me, when I talk to most of the people on the left that I've talked to about Bitcoin, when I really start to press on them, they start to talk about the Federal Reserve and inflation and things <laughs> in the way that is not informed, right? That is just not, and it's, I'm not saying the Federal Reserve is above criticism. It, it isn't. But the Federal Reserve doesn't really print money. Inflation hasn't made the dollar worth 1% of what it was worth in 1911 or whatever the statistic is, right? These are inherently conspiratorial theories. Yeah. You know, one thing we talked about earlier in some of our earlier conversations was I think another kind of incoherency there is just the sheer amount of resources that mining Bitcoin takes up. You know, it's like, oh, it's on your computer, like it's fine. But like the reality is that like it takes an absurd amount of electricity. It takes these huge servers and, you know, they it didn't a couple of years ago. But now like you need to hoard a bunch of resources to engage with this technology, which I think is something that's kind of incoherent with a, a leftist ideology of making sure that things are equal. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I should say I'm not I'm not discounting the fact that in some way or other these technologies might be useful in some kind of global <laughs> rethinking of certain parts of finance, and, and which I am in favor of. But what worries me is the sort of investment in the tool as if it's going to produce that itself, rather than an investment in whatever philosophy it is you're trying to realize. And then like, well, this tool happens to work for us. And there are a few people who have, there was some kind of credit system in South America, where they were trying to use a cryptocurrency to sort of exchange labor value in a way that you couldn't really take it back from the person once you'd given it to them. It was Maybe it's still going even, I'm not sure, but it was kind of interesting. Right. It's like seeing these technologies as tools that can be used to further various ideologies versus it just being the answer to a problem. Right. What problem is it answering? I, it's never really been clear to me. This kind of brings me to another question. We've been talking about Bitcoin a lot, but something I think we've been thinking about here at Motherboard, and I think the wider community has been thinking about is Ethereum. And I wonder how you think that the ideology might be different there, because, you know, one of the major differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that the latter is not meant to replace money. Like, it's a system on which these smart contracts can exist and where, you know, it's supposed to be more than something to replace money, which I think was kind of the, like, in simple terms, goal of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. whereas Ethereum and Ether, the cryptocurrency associated with it, are kind of different. You know, and I think what's really fascinating about Ether is that banks were some of the earliest adopters. And, you know, like that kind of seems incoherent. Do you feel like, you know, the ideology is different there? Like what what are your what are your thoughts on it? 
you know, Ethereum is completely fascinating, and I've certainly been trying to follow it since it was started. I really do see a lot of very disturbing political stuff in the communities around Ethereum, you know, starting with Vitalik Buterin himself. And even though he's kind of a smart guy... For our listeners, think, this is the, the founder and the... main founder of Ethereum, right? And, you know, he is a product of the Thiel Fellowship, right? Which is all about disparaging the very idea of education and of reading and of you know, especially like reading politics and history and, you know, that you can just go and redo it all yourself. And Buterin actually, in some of his writing, criticizes other members of the Ethereum community for not wanting to read enough about how politics and history work, which I credit to him. But when you read the sort of governance ideas that they have, they're all these like new wave get rid of democracy, replace it with stigmergy and all these weird (laughs) multiple direct democracy voting things that they have, you know, which are not to me based in thoughtful, thorough understandings of how democracy itself works. And is, you know, I, our democracy is pretty screwed up. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I feel like the only thing worse would be to replace it with one of these totally untested and really poorly philosophically grounded systems. And just to talk about Ethereum a little more specifically, right? There, there was this whole huge venture capital discourse that was like, it's blockchain, not the Bitcoin. Blockchain can do all this stuff that is not cryptocurrency based, even though in order to function, a blockchain needs some kind of token that is like a cryptocurrency. And Ethereum is the first real and really the only major project that is based around this idea of building a blockchain system that could do other things and that's, whose main point would not be to generate either transactions through cryptocurrency or investment through cryptocurrency. And, you know, everybody is on Ethereum. All the big tech companies and banks are working on Ethereum and a lot of governments. And it's been around for a while at this point. It is interesting that there really are, as far as I can tell, no functioning applications on it. And part of that you can read in all the major sites, like when people really start to dig into it and start to compare it to other existing software, which is something a lot of these people don't want to do a lot of the time. But they're like, this stuff actually doesn't work that well for the things we need to do. And as you mentioned before, it's often very expensive computationally and in terms of energy capacity. Like they want to have a secure database that's kind of uncorruptible, you know, surprise to the Bitcoin people. But Wall Street traders have been needing uncorruptible, multiple backup databases for a long time, right? I mean, that they know how to build these things that also happen to work extremely fast and are low resource usage. The problems that they think Bitcoin solves are problems that are kind of articulated in other ways and solved in other ways by a lot of these entities or the blockchain, let's say, more generally. So so then why do you think people find it so exciting then? Like if it's kind of like, oh, we've seen this before, we've seen it in ways that are more efficient, easily done. Is it that like it's like, oh, there's this like Canadian teenager who came up with this wild idea and like it feels very and I think like in the coverage you see a lot of the time from the news media, it really feels exciting and like it feels rebellious. It seems like the opposite of Wall Street. So it's really interesting in a way that like at the end of the day, when you really break it down, it's like, oh, this software is kind of a not so good version of something we already have. Right. And and it, it's another place where it looks like conspiracy theory to me. It kind of has this pre-digested, very clipped analysis of the entire world situation. And then it gives you this kind of extremely simplistic black and white solution to all of it that is it's just for the most part false. It is, it is, you know, it, it's, it, it gives a very simple answer to a complex question. What's that question? 
Well, the question is, you know, why is the world so screwed up? Why do people with money have so much power? Why is it so hard to spread that, you know, to, to equalize these things a little bit more? I mean, these are, you know, fundamental political. Why is democracy so screwed up? Why is it so hard to get, you know, the what is supposed to represent us in, in Washington and so forth to actually represent us in a way that makes sense? You know, these are fundamental political questions. And it, to, to some people, it looks as if Bitcoin and or the blockchain, like, solve them. But I, I don't think that's how you solve them. Unfortunately, the only way to solve them is through the kind of boring, tedious, very long-term political work that involves understanding all the complexities of these things. One can understand why that is not appealing to people. But Right. And I think that that's part of the problem of this decades long at this point, like Silicon Valley lore of like, this smart young kid with this genius idea, like whether it's Mark Zuckerberg, you know, whether it's Travis Kalanick, you know, they're going to revolutionize the world and like they're going to make it better. And I think that it's kind of similar in a sense, like the face of either is, you know, this teenager who came up with this idea and like it seems so it seems so simple. And I think you're so right that it seems easy and like, wouldn't it be nice if like the revolution happened and everything was better? I think it's a good reminder that these technologies are interesting, but it's worth thinking about the politics and the history around them and they're the lack thereof sometimes. I think most of the time when people are like, oh, what is Bitcoin? The first answer is, you know, let's talk about the software here. Let's talk about how the technology works rather than let's talk about what they're trying to accomplish. And what the problem is, I mean, in the thing you just mentioned, we see it all the time. Zuckerberg just said, right, we're, you know, I sort of built Facebook to make the world a better place, right? And, and I want to sit down with him and be like, what do you think the problems are that need to be improved? And what do you mean by making it better? And because when you hear him talk about that stuff, to me, he has an extremely thin understanding of those, of what to me are the, you know, they're like the second half of the sentence that people don't pay attention to, but you see it all over the place in these in Travis Kalanick and other people like that. Like their understanding of like what the problems in the world are is very, very poor and based on very little experience and reading and interaction with people. And it's it's dangerous for that reason. Like, you know, and people other people, it's so easy to fill it in with like you know, well, my understanding of what the problems in the world are, right? But you have to remember they may not at all be familiar with a lot of the stuff, you know, the decades, centuries long thought and work about what the problems really are. Uh, well, you know, I became interested in the future partly after I was born, very long time ago. And uh, you know, I think all kids are very interested in the future. Unfortunately, in life, it happens that sometimes people do stop being interested in the future at a certain time. But fortunately, it hasn't been my case. That's Giulio Prisco. I reached out to him because he completely disagrees with Colombia. He's an Italian writer, futurist, and one of the earliest adopters of Bitcoin. He's also a physicist, computer scientist, and previously worked at the European Space Agency. Prisco also wrote a review of Colombia's book in Bitcoin magazine. I checked in with him to see how he feels about cryptocurrencies. Since the very beginning of the internet in the 80s, I started participating in uh, this thing that uh, nobody had heard about at the time, uh, joining extropian mailing lists and this kind of stuff. And I had been writing about the future ever since. You were working in space at that point, right? I spent a lot of time working in space. When did you first come across Bitcoin and why did it interest you? The first uh, 
paper describing uh, Bitcoin was sent to a mailing list called the Cryptography Mailing List at the end of 2008. And, you know, it was something uh, extremely experimental at the time, but uh, I had been reading and thinking about the idea of digital cash for quite some time. So I immediately started experimenting with it. And, you know, at the very beginning, you could actually mine Bitcoin on your computer. Right, before it started taking up so much energy. Yes. And, uh, yeah, not only energy, but also computing time. And uh, at that time, you could make, uh, like, 25 to 50 Bitcoin per day mining on your computer. Now, what does that mean in dollars today? That would be, uh, I know, one Bitcoin is about 2,500 bucks. <laughs> it's a fortune. A small fortune. Yeah, it would be a fortune today, and you could make that every day. Were you mining on your own computer? Yes, but, you know, more like an experiment than things. At some point, uh, I had thousands of Bitcoin. Uh, if I had uh, kept only a fraction of them, I would be a multimillionaire now. You know, I did things uh, like uh, sending 100 Bitcoins uh, to friends uh, to show them how it worked. I suppose I was a very early uh, evangelist. Of Bitcoin. But you know, it was uh, really an experiment because there were many initiatives like Bitcoin at that time. You could not know which one would succeed and which one would not. So if you were into experimenting with these things, you tried uh, many things, but as an experiment, maybe as a politically motivated experiment, not to make money. So as an early adult, I used to have a lot of Bitcoin at the beginning. Then at some point when the value of Bitcoin was about $10, which happened uh, two or three years after that, I thought, oh, this is worth money now. And since I needed uh, cash, uh, I sold it all. I made a few thousand bucks doing that, but you know, that would, uh, would have been uh, much more than a few thousand bucks today. What did you think of Bitcoin when you first encountered it? I love the concept. And, you know, the concept is that you can create something that can perform all the function of money without having to rely on a central entity like a government or a central bank. And in a completely peer-to-peer way, that was kind of a dream scenario. So initially, yes, my interest in Bitcoin were mostly ideological because I wanted that possibility to be open. Why do you think it's bad to rely on a government for a monetary system? Or why is it problematic? Regardless of whether it's problematic or not, I think having more options is always good. The idea that decides centrally controlled money, we also have uh, private money, is good because it's one more option. As simple as that. I know that you're familiar with David Columbia's book, and I saw your op-ed in Bitcoin magazine, and you said that he distorts freedom and control to paint Bitcoin as something that came out of right-wing extremism. What do you think about his argument, and what do you think the real ideology behind Bitcoin is? Are you recording this? Yes. Can I say something in French? Um, <laughs> sure. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think 
Columbia's book is real bullshit. <laughs> I'm afraid you'll have to edit that out. But anyway, you know, how can it be that one can push uh, sophistic uh, distortions of reality so far as to end up saying that freedom is a bad thing? That's what I'm asking you. The thing is, uh, Columbia's book is not entirely bad. The guy is certainly an intelligent person. What part of his argument do you think is compelling or like rang true for you, if any? Yeah, you know what rang true is that I completely agree with him in extending my gut dislike of big government to big business as well. This uh, concentration of power is exaggerated concentration of power, in my opinion, can only have uh, very negative effects. And whether it comes from a big government or from a large uh, corporation is pretty much the same. So I'm not one of those US-style libertarians who dislike governments, but like a corporation. I'm kind of very, very suspicious of both. I think that's a good attitude. And I think whatever is really peer-to-peer in the sense of being controlled by the people themselves, by the people, for the people, that is something that, in my opinion, can decrease the control over our life of both governments and corporations, and therefore I think it's a good thing. Now, continuing with the parts of uh, Columbia's book that I do like, there is uh, this uh, realization that I think it should be kind of uh, obvious at uh, this point, that initially the internet was thought of as a tool that would promote uh, decentralization and freedom. What actually happened, and now in 2017 we know that very well, is that the result was pretty much the opposite in today's uh, online world. Is, right, uh, it's so centralized. Yeah, it's uh, controlled by a very few, very large companies like Google and Facebook which, uh, you know, in hindsight, it would have been evident from the beginning because internet business is a winner-take-all business that does favor runaway power concentrations. So that, yes, do you remember uh, John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace? Cyberspace, the home of mind and all that. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, well, of course, the result is exactly the opposite. Now the internet is controlled from governments and corporations. It's a fact. In this analysis, I do completely agree with Columbia, but the thing is that it doesn't have to be like that. The decentralized peer-to-peer technologies that are used in uh, Bitcoin and also in systems like uh, BitTorrent can be used to achieve uh, a completely opposite effect, which is to promote decentralization, to promote self-ownership, and ultimately to promote the freedom. Right. It hasn't happened like that so far, but I think it's our fault. We haven't been smart enough. But as recently as last year, Tim Berners-Lee, the originator of the web, held a summit 
on uh, prospects for a really decentralized internet. And you know, things are happening, not very fast, but things are happening in the world of web and uh, cryptography development, combining the features of systems like uh, Bitcoin and systems like peer-to-peer file exchanges. And the result of this work should be the development of a really decentralized internet, something where citizens can live in complete privacy and uh, beyond the power of governments and corporations to control. And I think that would be something good. Right. Kind of like you could have cryptocurrency micropayments for like a journalistic outlet online or you could have... This is a very good example. And in fact, it's one of the typical applications that are under discussion now. The thing is that, okay, now publishing sector is centralized and the online publishing sector is centralized as well. But just imagine a magazine where uh, uh, readers can uh, send a very small micropayment and they can send it in uh, one click, just click push of a button to read the papers that they especially like. I think this kind of business model could work. Right, and you could have it be in, you know, a kind of payment that was also decentralized. As a matter of fact, the possibility of micropayment was included in the initial thinking about the web. Berners-Lee wanted to include a micropayment standard in the web standard in the 90s. No, that didn't happen because it was difficult to implement, not only technically difficult, but especially from the regulatory point of view. So it was not done, and that was a pity. As discussed, for example, by Jaron Lanier in the book Who Owns the Future, it would have been really better to include a payment standard the internet from the very beginning because that would enable all these new ways of doing things like uh, micropayments powered uh, publishing. It didn't happen, but we have the chance that we can sort of uh, introduce the concept uh, back now on top of the internet as it is using Bitcoin. And I think that's the reason why Bitcoin is uh, something uh, great. If I'm hearing you correctly, I think the ideology comes down to that Bitcoin is about pushing back against these corporations and governments that have centralized the Internet in a lot of ways. I think it is. I guess from your perspective, it's political in a sense, but it's not like a left versus right ideology. It's more of an anti-power ideology that comes down to like making the web what it was originally supposed to be about. Well, yes, but I think this is a very political thing. It's not an uh, anti or a political statement. It is, uh, I think, left and right, which are very obsolete concepts from the 19th century. The real uh, political uh, struggle of our days is between personal freedom and central authority. And I think in this sense, Bitcoin is a tool of freedom and ultimately a tool of good. That's really interesting. What do you think about other related cryptocurrencies like Ethereum? Are they as promising to you? Do you prefer Bitcoin? What do you think about the fact that Ethereum has become so popular lately? Ethereum introduces a couple of very innovative concepts. The most important new concept introduced by Ethereum is programmability. 
it can be used to make really programmable money. Right, you can build applications. Yeah, you're familiar with the smart contract technology, I suppose. Yeah, I think you that's must why. You read something about that. You know, a smart contract is something which executes itself if uh, some conditions are made. For example, suppose that you and I make an agreement that if something happens, I send you 100 bucks. Now, once the agreement is made, we can write a piece of software called the smart contract, which can do one of many things. For example, it could go and scan the web to read the news, whether this thing happened or didn't happen. Suppose, for example, it's the outcome of a political election. And if what I have to pay you for happens, the smart contract would immediately send you the money. Now, this is a very simple example, but you can see that it can be generalized to a lot of really interesting applications. These things were not initially possible in uh, Bitcoin itself, because by design, Bitcoin does not permit very flexible programming on top of it. In Bitcoin, you just have a very small number of computational primitives that you can combine, but uh, you can combine them in many ways, but you cannot write a general purpose uh, software program out of them, while Ethereum is meant to be a complete programming language, among other things. And so that, yes, Ethereum is uh, really an innovation. Now, Hank said that the same uh, technically is called uh, during a complete scripting could also be introduced back into Bitcoin itself thanks to some new systems under development. So I am very optimistic for the future of both Bitcoin and Ethereum. The so-called altcoins, I'm not very impressed so far because most of them are only very poor imitations of Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum. That's in general, but there are a couple of uh, very interesting and innovative things. For example, a new generation of privacy-friendly cryptocurrencies, which could permit real, fully anonymous payments over the internet. It's really interesting to think about how building applications on top of Ethereum and possibly retroactively implementing that kind of technology into Bitcoin could be used. What do you say to people who think that cryptocurrencies are just about making a quick profit? Is there more to it in your opinion? Like, Will it just continue to be another vehicle for making a quick investment and making a quick couple thousand dollars? Do you think it's more than that? You know, Louisa, you Tell me one good thing that is not also used to make a quick profit. (laughs) That's a good point. If something is good, you can make a quick profit out of it. And of course, there will be somebody who is only interested in that aspect. I would be unpleasantly surprised if that weren't the case. Because, you know, if nobody wants to use something to make a quick profit, that probably means that something is not exceptionally good to start with. So that makes sense. But what do you say to like, there are major banks and other 
corporations that are interested in investing in these cryptocurrencies because they realize that there are investment opportunities. And that seems kind of disconnected to the ideology of trying to break up these big corporations and trying to push back against them. What happens if cryptocurrencies just become another place to make money as opposed to something that could make the web a better place for everyone. Yeah, well, but, you know, let's come back to the point that we were making about what the web was initially meant to be and what it is now. Now it's controlled by governments and corporations. And I don't have any doubt that in a few years also Bitcoin will be entirely controlled by big governments, big corporations and big banks. In fact, every major bank has a blockchain development initiative these days because they realize that this technology is something they can use to make their own business more cost effective. And once they realize that, of course, they jump on board. Now, things that what the banks and the governments are building is not Bitcoin. It's something that reuses some of the same technology, but it's really not the same system. It's not a public blockchain. It's not something that you can decide to join. It's not Uh, privacy friendly, it cannot be anonymous, you know, it's uh, what I like to call a sanitized version of Bitcoin. I like that. And I have no doubt that in a few years we will have that, but at the same time we'll also have a new next generation systems that will continue to perform the disruptive and uh, anti-power work of Bitcoin. So it's going to continue to be a cat and mouse game, like we're going to continue to have to innovate. Uh, Yeah, of course, it's going to continue like that forever. But you can say the same about every technology. So how then do people who want to make the Internet a more free place for everyone stay ahead of these corporations and keep these systems open? What do you think they need to do in order to do that? (laughs) They just need to find smart and innovative ways to build on technologies that we already have. And two examples are the blockchain technology and the BitTorrent technology. And uh, on top of that, we can build a decentralized web. Now, why do I think that will happen? You know, simply because those who work for uh, big governments, big banks and big corporations are nine to five workers. Those who develop next generation uh, blockchain technologies are hackers and they just think hackers are smarter than nine to five workers and much more motivated. Right. They have something motivating them more than a paycheck. Yeah. What uh, they do because really want to see it done. So I think if uh, there has to be a war, hackers are going to win it. Now, of course, what happens in the meantime? is that since the big guys have more money, they can keep trying to use their money to catch up with the hackers. But, you know, they do that, but in the meantime, the hackers will have advanced some more. So I think it will be a continuous war, like it has always been, with each part trying to leapfrog the other. But I think crypto anarchists, will always have uh, a certain competitive advantage. So I'm not really too worried 
to uh, live in a big brother controlled world. You don't think it's going to happen? I'm afraid it could happen, but how to say, I'm reasonably confident it won't. I hope you're right. So do I. Thanks for the episode. This week's show was produced by Luis Matsakis and edited by Tim Barnes. Thank you, Tim. We will be back next week with another episode of Radio Motherboard. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and every podcast app. We're at motherboard.vice.com. Come check us out. Come check us out.